Our reading this morning is selected from a guy named Andrew W.K. who writes an advice column for the Village Voice in New York City. This is how the letter appeared, and I will share it with Julian Floor. This is how it appeared in the Village Voice. Hey, Andrew, thanks for doing what you do to help people. I'm going to make this short and to the point. My older brother was diagnosed with cancer last week. My whole family is freaking out and trying to deal with the news. Everyone is trying to find different ways to help, but something my grandmother said has really got me angry. She said we should all just, quote, pray for my brother, like prayer would actually save his life. Just thinking about it now makes my fist clench with frustration. We need to actively help my brother and do actual things to save him, not kneeling on the ground and mumbling superstitious nonsense. I got into a fight with my grandmother and the rest of the family about this now, and I feel worse than ever. I need to get them to see that praying and religious mumbo-jumbo does not help at all. How do I explain this to them? Thanks for reading this. Sincerely, not gonna pray. Dear Not Gonna Pray, I'm deeply sorry to hear about your brother's diagnosis. I'm sending you my thoughts and my heart goes out to your brother and your whole family. And guess what? That was me praying for you. I think the idea of praying is a lot less complicated, a lot more powerful, and a little different than you may realize. In fact, I'll bet you're already praying all the time and you just don't realize it. Prayer is a type of thought. It's a lot like meditation, a type of very concentrated mental focus with passionate emotions directed toward a concept or situation or lack thereof. But there's a special X-factor ingredient that makes prayer different from meditation or other types of thought. That X-factor is humility. This is the most seemingly contradictory aspect of prayer and what many people dislike about the feeling of praying. Getting down on your knees is not about lowering your power or being a weakling. It's about showing respect for the size and the grandeur of what we call existence. It's about being humble in the presence of the vastness of life space and sensation, and acknowledging our extremely limited understanding of what it all really means. Being humble is very hard for many people because it makes them feel unimportant and helpless. To embrace our own smallness is not to say that we're dumb or that we don't matter, but to realize how amazing it is that we exist at all in the midst of so much more. To be fully alive, we must realize how much else there is besides ourselves. We must accept how much we don't know and how much more we still have to learn about ourselves and the whole world. Kneeling down and fully comprehending the incomprehensible is the physical act of displaying our respect for everything that isn't us. I want you to pray for your brother 
right now as a gesture to your grandmother who, if she didn't exist, neither would you. I want you to pray right now just for the sake of challenging yourself. I want you to find a place alone and kneel down against all your stubborn tendencies telling you not to and close your eyes and think of one concentrated thought. Your brother. I want you to think of your love for him, your fear of him dying, your feeling of powerlessness, your feelings of anger and frustration, your feelings of confusion. You don't need to ask to get anything. You don't need to try and fix anything. You don't need to try and get answers. Let the feelings take you away from yourself. Let them bring you closer to him. Let yourself be overwhelmed by the unyielding and uncompromising emotion of him until you lose yourself in it. Think about him more than you've ever thought about anyone before. Think about him more deeply and with more detail than you've ever thought about anything. Think about how incredible it is that you have a brother, that he exists at all. Focus on him until you feel like your soul is going to burst. Tell him in your heart and your soul that you love him. Feel that love pouring out of you from all sides. Then get up and go be with him and your family. And you can tell your grandmother that you have prayed for your brother. I love you. And it is from our love together that I remind us every week that here is our world and such beautiful and terrible things happen all the time. And we need shepherds to tell us to be not afraid. We hold hope for each other when hope is hard to find. We plant seeds that will one day grow when spring arrives. We are prophets of a future, not our own. We cannot do everything, but we can do one thing this week. So as Melissa reminded us, we can forget our perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That is how our light gets in. Mr. Dieterine, it's your turn, she said, which was plain enough to see because I was next in line. There was a long row of us in line, the girls with bare shins and blue-gray plaid skirts next to boys in navy blue pants, some faded white at the knees from too many slides during heated games of kickball with a red ball that went for miles. Remember that red ball? Oh, I mutter, thinking the long bangs that I don't have anymore that were cool in the early 80s would hide the eye roll that I added for emphasis. Mr. Dietering, I see that. <laughs> don't roll your eyes at me. 
Maybe you can share that too when you get inside. Go on. He is waiting. To which I breathed out a big sigh, the sound of my breath bouncing off the stone walls and my shuffling feet and mingling with Sarah Benoit's giggle. Sarah Benoit, who I nurtured a quiet crush on since the fifth grade when she lent me her eraser and her fingers touched my fingers. Go on, Nathan, she said. The Lord does not have all day. Her right pointy finger pointing right to the red velvet curtain behind which we were told redemption and forgiveness waited. But then how come her pointy finger and throaty scowl made me feel like I was in such bad trouble? I thought God existed beyond time. I almost sassily replied back. (laughs) But then I knew that she, let's give her a name, Sister Antonio. I knew that Sister Antonio would make me pay in the form of cut recess time and give me the early 6 a.m. Monday altar boy slot which would punish not only me but also my dad who converted from being a loose Christmas and Easter religionist to Catholicism for my mom and whose job it would be to drive me to that Monday morning mass and wait out in the car smoking cigarettes. Not coming in because why? Because I have my reasons, he would say. Which was fair enough because we all do don't we? And that is why I'm so fond of that poem I sometimes quote for us from Miller Williams, who says that we ought to have compassion for everyone that we meet, even if they do not want it, because we never know what wars are going on down where the spirit meets the bone. What a challenge those words offer me in these political times. You too? Hi, I'm here, I say as I close the curtain. I sit on the dark wooden shelf of a seat, my bony early teen tailbone nubbing against the wood, just enough to put me instantly in discomfort and on alert. A feeling such at odds, such at ironic odds with this painting that was outside next to the altar so magnificent, the painting of Jesus cradling one single frightened sheep, the one in the parable of the shepherd who left his flock of 99 to find the one that had been lost, signaling that each one of us, no matter how lost, deserves to be found and loved and tended to, no matter what, no matter where, no matter when. I commend this parable to us whenever we hear someone say they are Christian and then seem to favor the 99 rather than the one. We forget just how revolutionary Jesus was in this way. Jesus who was a person of color, not a blue-eyed, blonde Aryan. 
Jesus, who was certainly more Che Guevara than Ayn Rand. Even then, at that age, I wanted to learn more about the God described in that painting, the shepherd who would lead me beside still waters and seek after me when I lost my way. But instead, the lesson that I got was in that four-by-four dark corner of the church. We know it now as a confessional, but back then at the age of 13, what I knew it as was an interrogation room. The priest whispering through wired mesh and muted light that the Lord our God was ready to hear my sins, a word that more than any other has produced a steady stream of customers for the therapist. But a word, sin, that means something very simple. It means to miss the mark. Anyone here miss the mark lately? <laughs> Y'all better have every single hand raised in this room. Anyone here need to get it off your chest and be told that you're worthy of love anyway? Y'all better raise all of your hands. But instead of that healing message, the darkness of that room, the confinement of the drawn curtain, the secrecy of the faceless man behind the screen conspired to make me learn a different kind of message. You could say a different kind of prayer. Shame. Shame for pinching my sister when she deserved it. <laughs> Shame for the crush that I had on Sarah Benoit. Shame for leaning over Derek Eckelman's shoulder to peek at his algebra. Shame for the covetous longing I had for the new Schwinn bicycle in the window. And shame for the secrets that were harder to say out loud, for the adolescent self-doubt and insecurity and lostness that, my friends, is not only adolescent. Shame for wishing in the mirror to look different, Shame to not feeling like I had enough friends for more popularity, more money, better skin, better smile, better anything than what and who I am. Shame. God's eye in that room shining on me like a single light bulb pulled from a string during an interrogation, demanding the truth, no lawyer present. Sign here for the confession, says God, the bad cop. Priest, the bad cop. Sister Antonio, the bad cop. And the good shepherd, ready with love, stuck, frozen, and immobilized on the painting on a wall, calling my name, Nathan, looking for me, trying to lure me out of that four-by-four four secret hiding place. I wonder... 
How do we unlearn the messages given us when we were younger than we are now? So that we can learn something new, so that we can be set free. Because the prayer that I have spent a lifetime unlearning and that I know I'm not alone in trying to unlearn is a prayer that I will call the blame prayer or the shame prayer or God is at the wheel so behave yourself in the back seat prayer or why the hell prayer. It's a prayer that says that we have to earn back the love that is available to us, a love that we lost and that we lose when we screw up, which we do. And it's a love that we lost and we lose when the world breaks as it does, so that the prayer becomes a plea to to God or to life or the sky or to our shoes to restore us, to make sense of the nonsensical, to explain Reverend Nathan Dietering why terrible things happen, to give purpose to cancer cells and to earthquakes and to tornadoes, and before their time, deaths. And every death, my friends, is before their time. All of it because either God is capricious or because somewhere someone is to blame. God helps those who help themselves is a version of this prayer. And people think that it's from the Bible, but it's actually something that Ben Franklin said Ben Franklin, who was so antagonistic to Christianity. It's a prayer that blames the victim for the crime and seeks to mete out justice but never mercy upon those deemed lost or less than worthy and not faithful, which means that it was a prayer that surely rested on the lips of Khalid Massoud this week as he drove his rented Hyundai into those people on Westminster Bridge, thinking them infidels, and saying they must pay. Watch out, says this prayer. Be afraid, I see you. And in this prayer, God is a peeping Tom, or worse, God is Gestapo. God is a president who is paranoid about leaks and betrayals. God who has reasons for things we simpletons cannot understand. God who would punish 13-year-old boys and confessionals for being and feeling 13. And who only needed to be told instead, Nathan, go outside and look at the pain. Come by my side. Be not afraid, you, my lost little one. Because even though you walk through the dark valleys of adolescence and adulthood and life, I am with you. Some of you, especially those of you who are new to us, to this community that I've been here for, I guess, a rather long time now, ask me what my shared vision is for our ministry. And even though I have degrees and training and I have the robe and I have the stole, to offer perhaps a lovely answer that will sit all lovely at the top of some lovely letterhead that you will never read, 
My answer is this. Are you ready? My vision for our ministry is a making holy of the preposition with. Why is that? Because unlike the isolation of that confessional of my childhood, all full of blame and shame and worry, we just cannot do this journey by ourselves. What is ministry, you ask me? Because I get these requests all the time from people like you who say, not gonna pray. And I want you to forget the attire and the smells and the bells and the sermons and the chalices and the pulpits and the pews facing to me. I want you to forget it all and remember instead that ministry is the practice of withness. It's about being present and it's about showing up. Because in a world of sheep and shepherds and walls and declarations about who's in and who's out and dark valleys and shadows and wolves on the prowl, in the meadows of these times that we are living in now, we need the withness of each other. We need each other to help us learn a new kind of prayer. It's a prayer of companionship and collaboration. We need binoculars to help each other find the lost. We need to learn how to use hooks and crooks and canes for those lost in the cracks. We need healing hands to hold up protest signs. We need hospital visits. We need immigration justice volunteers. We need tailbones in the pews so that we can be here for each other. We need wordless arms on shoulders. We need auctions because God knows we need fun and superheroes. Even if those heroes are broken and barely able to fly. We need flashlights and wrist lights to light dark valleys. We need the beautiful earth. We need spring. We need each other. We don't need verbs. We don't need nouns. We don't need adjectives to pretty up what can feel ugly. We need the preposition with so that we don't try to do it by ourselves. We need psalms and opening words that say, the Lord is not my punisher, but instead the Lord is my shepherd. And we need permission that if that word, any of those words get caught in your throat, you have the freedom of the pew to pick another word. Because with your help and with 
our help. We can face, my friends, whatever comes, joy overflowing, and the goodness and the blessing and the mercy will be with us every day of our life. That I can promise you. So together, out of our confessional, we come and let us stand in the light and with each other 